Coming up, Joe Dante joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hello, everyone. I'm Ileana Douglas. Welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I'm here in the studio with Tamara Bird. Hello, everybody. Co-host. Very excited to be uh, talking to uh, Joe Dante. Just so so much a part of the uh, fabric of West Coast Cinema. Worked with Roger Corman. Got his start. And we've got a lot of crossover people. Um, yeah. In terms of, but we've never actually met. So, uh, which I think is crazy. I know. So I'm excited. I'm very excited to be uh, speaking to him. It's a really interesting genre that he almost kind of uh, you know created i mean right. he brought the werewolf movies into the kind of into the modern age and sort of the mix, howling the mm-hmm. howling of course and uh, mixing uh, comedy and horror which is not which everything seems to just be horror now but the idea of comedy horror is um is, is sort of missing on the landscape. Well, you know, one of my all-time favorite movies is Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Brilliant comedic horror film. Yes. So gross and graphic <laughs> and bloody and hilarious. Like, laugh out loud funny and, and really scary. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean... I think I think that there's definitely a way to do it and a way to make it uh, yes. really fantastic. Do you, do you have any favorite moments from that sort of genre of film or favorite favorite films of your own? Well, I have to say, I mean, just you know, there's scenes in the Gremlins, you know, and having rewatched the movie recently, I mean, you know, the, there's and we're going to talk about this more, but some of the action sequences are just so funny, yeah. um, but they also you know combine uh, great. You know, special effects and yeah. great acting performances, and I think that that's another thing that's missing. Is whereas you know now everything is just there's no there's no relief from the horror, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the it's things relentless. that I'm going to ask Joe about, which he really believes in, is that you have to put the laughs in so that people because people will find laughs, so you put the laughs in uh, before they do, and and that sort of harkens back to somebody like Hitchcock right. in uh, in some of his films too. Where there, he's got you know comedy in the midst of scariness to break up the tension and also to uh, you know to distract you. Absolutely, uh, yeah, c- catch you off guard a little bit. Yeah, for sure. You know, because then the scary is even scarier. That's right. But I would say so. Hitchcock, you know, movies like Shadow of a Doubt and uh, uh, where they're you know they're living with Uncle Charlie, who's a murderer, and the whole time, <laughs> the whole time, the father and his friend are coming up with ways to kill someone or poison someone. And I, lo- I love that scene. So that's sort of my favorite. That's like <laughs> a, an, an old one. And uh, another thing that we have in common is we both love uh, uh, the movie Hell's Poppins. So hopefully we're going to talk about that too. Well, we should just get started. Yeah, let's do. Let's bring him in. I'm uh, so excited. Joe, of course, is an incredibly talented director. Made such groundbreaking films, uh, of course, uh, which include Piranha, Inner Space, The Burbs, most notably The Gremlins. One of my favorites, of course, uh, which is uh, Matinee. I absolutely love that movie. He's also directed television shows like Hawaii Five O and runs Trailers from Hell. Hi, Joe Dante. 
Hi, Eliana. It's, I'm so excited to have you here. Well, thanks. Um, I wanted to start with Roger Corman because... Everybody should start with Roger Corman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because, you know, with uh, Jonathan Demme just passed away, he got his start working for Roger Corman. And it got me thinking that there currently, for those of us who want to be filmmakers, there is no Roger. There is no Roger Corman. You know, of course, you you know, you, you could only make a movie for seventy thousand dollars. But the idea that you had an opportunity like that. Um, well, you know, uh, Kids are always coming up to me and saying, so how did you start? How did you get your start in pictures? And I, I, I start to launch into my tirade. And then <laughs> I, I realize it's completely irrelevant because the business that I got into in 1973 mm-hmm. is not the same business that it is now. And yes. the opportunities are so completely different. Uh, the, the appeal of the Corman factory was that uh, he would hire people who had no experience whatsoever, pay them what they were worth, mm-hmm as we later discovered. Uh, and you had a chance to do stuff. It, 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 very often on a Corman picture, the, the guy who was doing the sound would look over at the art director and say, geez, you know, I, I, that's a better job. I'd rather do that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot, there was a lot of cross-pollinization in these movies. I mean, crew members would just do each other's jobs. And so it was an incredible learning experience. You would, mm-hmm. it, it, it was film school. I mean, they call it the Roger Corman Film School. And it's, right. it's for a reason. You, you learned on the job. And... Dauntingly, you realized that the the fruits of your labor were going to be on you know fifty southern drive-ins mm-hmm. in two months, and people were going to see it. Yes, you know, so it wasn't just like making your student film and then locking away in the closet for Uncle Tom when he comes over. It's, it's basically this is it. You're in the, you're in the business. Only you really kind of weren't because these pictures were never reviewed. They were seldom taken seriously. Uh-huh. And and the big plus was that if you made a picture for Roger and it wasn't awful. People took notice mm-hmm. because they expected that those movies should always be awful. And, and, and it wasn't just Roger. There was a whole number. There's Crown International. There's Dimension. They had a lot of uh, other people who were trying to fill the drive-in market mm-hmm. uh, with low-budget pictures. And lots of people got their starts there. And um, you know, Jonathan Demme was, uh, originally worked for Roger on Von Richthofen and Brown in the publicity department. And Roger took a shine to him, as he mm-hmm. often did. And pretty soon he was writing scripts for some biker movies. And then he got a chance to direct. And the first picture that he directed, Caged Heat, was the, movie, the first trailer that I made for Corman. Oh. I love one of the stories that you're telling just about you literally started uh, editing but trailers, but you had no idea. Your only experience had been as a kid putting little well, pictures I, together. I had made a movie called The Movie Orgy, which was a found footage compilation film cut from 16-millimeter prints. So there's mm-hmm. only one print with like 2,000 splices. And that that was the extent of my editing experience. Mm-hmm. And when when confronted with a print of Caged Heat and a moviola, right, and being locked in a room and said, "Okay, come out with a trailer," I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I had no idea. Luckily, a friend of mine, Ken Dixon, was a, a trailer editor for another company, and he mm-hmm. was a couple of doors down in that rental facility, and he showed me how to use the synchronizer and what it was for. I had no idea. The synchronizer was, it was, had, it had wheels on it. Right? You're yeah. supposed to turn it over and roll it. I mean, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I, because 35-millimeter equipment was just so foreign to people who went mm-hmm. to film school. It was all 16. Right. And so when you're confronted with an actual print, which, by the way, is heavy. 
I mean, one of the reasons yes. they, one of the reasons they switched from film to video is because people find it easier to carry the movies around. <laughs> um, it, it was it was you really t- it was sink or swim. You basically throw them in, and and a lot of people found that they couldn't do the job. A lot of people tried. Uh, they got a shot with Roger, and they mm-hmm. just discovered they got a chance to direct writers who got a chance to direct and discovered I don't like directing. I don't right. like the social aspect of it. I, I don't like actors. A lot mm-hmm. of writers discovered they didn't like actors because the actors sometimes wouldn't say the words the way they wrote them, and Gee. and you didn't have you didn't have the luxury of uh, you know a studio behind you. You were all on your own, and mm-hmm. it was just Roger. And the, and the the great thing was that when you went to a real studio to work for make quote real movies, um, you would get these layers of management. Mm-hmm. People telling you what to do. Where when you worked for Roger, there was one guy, Roger, and if right. you could convince him to do the picture the way you wanted or whatever it was. That was the guy, and plus mm-hmm. he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't a guy who just came in on Thursday and looked at the rushes. He mm-hmm. he, he had been a filmmaker for a long time. I was a huge fan of his movies when I finally got to meet him. Yeah, he was supplying something, as you said, in the marketplace that drive in. You know the, the, that you know there was there was you needed those those kind of films another thing that you said that i thought was very interesting was that by learning uh, how to edit it, it helped you as a director because everything you needed in a movie you basically had to put into a little trailer that's true it, it's sort of cinematic haiku you have to take this you have to take the scene that exists and you have to try to find a way to cut it down for trailers and tv spots which are sometimes only 30 seconds long uh. and 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 when you do that you start to realize what angles aren't needed to tell the story right and so when you're out on the set yourself mm-hmm. and the, the crunch comes you know that you don't need this angle because you can cut from this to this mm-hmm. and it gives you a, a certain kind of confidence that i think only editors turned directors have mm. uh, because they don't have to go through the learning curve of figuring out how things cut together in their head because they already know when they come in mm-hmm. and so i've always thought that editing is, is a great preparation for directing mm-hmm. and the thing about editors is, of course, that they, they're seldom invited to parties because they know everything about <laughs> about all the people they work with. Oh, they, they know who can't light. They know who can't act. They know yeah. who can't do good sound. No. And so it's like, don't don't have him around. <laughs> Does that actually reminds me of when I was on the movie uh, Alive, the Frank Marshall film. You know Frank. But yeah, the, every time we'd see the uh, Michael Kahn, the editor, uh, everyone would be like, Are, am I still in the movie? <laughs> So that, I thought that was the reason they would invite the editor. It does give the editor a certain amount of power. Um, okay, so we always go, we always start, we go back to the beginning. Um, do you remember the first, I, obviously I know some of the, and I want to talk about that, some of your film uh, influences, but do you remember the first movie you saw and who took you to see it? My uh, aunt, Betty, and Aunt Natalie, who were my mother's sisters, took me to the community theater in Morristown, New Jersey, to see Snow White in what must have been its second reissue mm-hmm. uh, in the early fifties. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 rem- I remember how I, I, it was. It was a it was a colonnade kind of theater with with it was very. It looked like the White House to me, <laughs> and I was very impressed. I mean, and, and plus, I, I was a huge Disney freak. I, I had all the comic books and mm-hmm. all the characters. I mean, Disney was. To my generation, Disney was Spielberg. To what Spielberg was to right. later generations, and and uh, uh, I sought out every cartoon that I. Our neighborhood theater used to have um, Saturday matinees, which mm-hmm. is a, a sadly vanished tradition where yeah. kids learn to go to the movies and like movies. Uh, and they would run ten cartoons and two features, mm-hmm. and I would always leave after the cartoons because it had, the features had adults in them, right. and that, <laughs> that meant lots of talking. And, you know, unless it was a western, then maybe okay. 
But it took me a little while. I had to stay. I, I stayed until it came from outer space in 3D, and I realized that it was okay, even though it had adults and girls and stuff in it. Right. <laughs> and, the, uh, and then there were other movies, that, um, people that you admire, James Whale, Frank Tashlin. Were you seeing like Martin and Lewis movies? Well, Martin and too? Lewis was huge. They were yeah. very huge. In fact, that when, when Martin and Lewis split up, it was like the Beatles split yeah. up. I mean, it was, what? They don't, they don't like each other? They <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't stand it. And, bef- and, and, and then, then Abbott and Costello broke up. And yeah. it was sort of like, well, what is what is it with these Hollywood people? They don't like each other. They've been together for twenty years, and they, they it's like a marriage. Yeah, and uh, and but but so what was it? So you incorporate a kind of a there's a lot of nods to Frank Tashlin in your in your films because he's got that kind of cartoon colorful. Well, well Tashlin was a cartoon. Yeah, uh, he made cartoons. He directed. He was a cartoon director. And when you look at some of the uh, Warner Brothers pictures he did in the '40s, the cartoons. Um, uh, they are they're p- uh, puss puss in boots no puss in can't remember the title it's a black and white cartoon about a cat but mm-hmm. it's so cinematic I mean the the angles are are they're they're from Vorkovich I mean mm-hmm. they're just great angles and he he obviously wanted to do more than just direct cartoons right and so when he finally got a chance on a Bob Hope movie to to reshoot a bunch of stuff that hadn't worked out mm-hmm. uh, Hope liked him. And yeah, that's how he ended up doing Son of Paleface, which is you know one of the great Mad Magazine kind of movies. Where yeah, just anything can happen. And so, another thing I was reading is that uh, you were kind of sickly as a child. So that well, you... I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> I was, well, as many if you must the... know, I had polio. As... There, I've said it. I, I, I was. You shouldn't su- make yes, fun of children did. with polio. No, I was. I, <laughs> it's I was very politically incorrect. Surprised to uh, to hear that, and so you share that in common with another great director, Martin Scorsese. You so locked in his bedroom. Yes, he making, had asthma. Yeah, making. And which we did the was same thing. We as, we actually lie uh, lie in bed not together because because <laughs> that, uh, that would be that would be trouble. Uh, but but Both very, Italian. very cinematic though, <laughs> uh, and and we did a lot. I I did a lot of drawing. I mean, I had, co- yeah. I had characters. I did comic strips uh, with recurring characters mm-hmm. and sometimes stolen from other things that I've seen and read. Uh, Borrowed, appropriated, yeah, uh, inspired, yeah. and, and, <laughs> embroidered on, embellished, embellished, uh, and and uh, so I never actually thought I would be a filmmaker. I thought I would be a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And then one day I sort of woke up to the idea that if I had a comic strip, then I would have to have a different joke every day, right, for a whole year. And I thought, well, it's impossible. I can't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, so I took a film class in uh, in college and an art school, and um, I, I, but that didn't that didn't help because there were forty students and two cameras. Right. Uh, and I didn't really learn anything. I, but there was a film history class, and mm-hmm. so I, I learned a lot of stuff there. And I learned that the only way I could see enough movies to fill my needs was to start collecting them in 16 millimeters. So I started uh. spending all my dimes. Even when I was in art school and I was supposed to be buying canvas and paint, yeah. I was buying 16 millimeter film prints. It's an elusive. You start in movie posters. I'm oh sure. yeah, no, I had that too. I had oh, the, the stills and the posters and the whole thing, and and the, the, they were cheap then. Yeah. You know, now they're like you know the same thing that you really shell out for. You yes. can get for fifty cents. Yes. From I, a place in in Kansas or something. Yeah, that was the late sixties. Mm. My parents were hippies, and so again, you, I remember there was that there were whole resurgence of movie W. C. Fields, right. and, the Marx Brothers and all of that. So that that was sort of my movie uh, growing up. So then you moved. So then you were in art school, but then you went directly. I, w- I actually went and worked to uh, a, a trade magazine called Film Bulletin in Philadelphia, which uh-huh. was a, sort of a, it had been around since the 
30s, and it was really on its last legs. I mean, I was like one of two or three employees, and uh, and but I did get to see all the movies that came out mm-hmm. and review them between 1969 and 1970 something when I went to California, uh, and. A friend of mine, John Davison, who mm-hmm. is better known now as the producer of Airplane and RoboCop, um, was also a he got me into 16 millimeter film collecting, and he got a job going to California to work for Roger Corman in publicity. Mm-hmm. And because Roger had used up all the kids from <laughs> the local schools, and, and then he'd gone to NYU and he brought Marty out and all these other people, and yeah. and he was now you know looking for more more kids, and so I went out there uh, to do a trailer for the student teachers which was Jonathan Kaplan's, mm-hmm. uh, one of his first movies. Yes. And um, it, the picture made money. And so somehow the fact that the picture made money was like, well, I guess this kid's trailer was okay then. <laughs> uh, so I ended up being able to become, with Alan Arkish, the trailer department at right. New World Pictures, where previously they had just hired people at piecemeal and had to try to explain to them how to make the trailers. And this way they could inculcate this knowledge into two people who actually worked there. Which led to a chance to direct a movie because mm-hmm. Alan and I obviously wanted to direct, and mm-hmm. who didn't, you know? Uh, and Roger made a bet with John Davison that he we could make a picture for Roger if it was the cheapest movie he'd ever made at New World, and we only had ten days to do it. And we couldn't figure out how to make something releasable uh-huh. under those circumstances, so we thought about the, all the clips from all the movies we've been doing trailers for, mm-hmm. and we thought, what if it's a movie about a movie company making? Movies, <laughs> and there's three girls who take their clothes off and get in trouble. Which of course. that was the formula for the nurses' pictures and the teachers' pictures. So we right. have actresses, and so we would dress our actresses in the clothing of the people in the clips from the movies we were using, uh-huh. and then we'd use the action scenes from all these different pictures. And the, and making it a movie studio allowed us to use science fiction pictures and westerns and mm-hmm. jungle movies and and put them all in one movie. Mm-hmm. So it became a movie about miracle pictures. If it's a good picture, it's a miracle which is a gag we stole from an early 30s movie, uh, and Candace Ralston, who was the reigning um, exploitation queen at mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. was the uh, rather large-breasted but big-hearted <laughs> <laughs> girl from Indiana <laughs> who comes out to try to make her way in Hollywood and gets waylaid by all the Hollywood people. Uh, and it was a, a, probably a probably a terrible movie but Roger had a lot of affection for it he thought yeah. it was he was much better than he he's thought he's a cameo in it he had, he had I think he thought it was probably going to have to shelve it but this was worth it to keep the kids working on the trailers you know because yeah, you yeah. wouldn't want them to be upset and you have to train new people right so uh, the picture you know it didn't exactly set the world on fire but it was we got a chance to direct and right. learn what it's like and I learned that uh, I liked the idea of being in a group of people with mm-hmm. ideas and doing creative stuff as opposed to sitting in your own little editing cubicle. It's, right. it's a completely different world. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Alan and I went on to do uh, more trailers, for mm-hmm. the, but then Roger started releasing pictures from Europe, and we got to meet Fellini, and we got to meet Truffaut, and make trailers for their pictures. Wow. Uh, and that was really exciting. Um, but then, then a picture came up called Rock and Roll High School, uh, and Alan wanted to do that. And there was mm-hmm. another movie called Piranha, which was I didn't think quite as... Enticing, uh, but I, I I took that one, and so mm-hmm. we both made those pictures, and they both turned out to be you know fairly well received. Yes. And as Roger often said, if you do, uh, to, if you work for me twice and do well, you'll never have to work for me again. Wow. And that was his sort of his model. Uh, Joe, can we have you raise your chair up just a little bit? Sure. Oh, because you're getting obscured by the mic. 
just as a oh, uh, for the for the picture. Here I we see. go. Yeah. Okay. Just as a side Perfect, qu- question, <laughs> did you show you know Piranha to Francois? Truffaut or Fellini? No, but or... we did show him Hollywood Boulevard, the yeah. first movie. Yeah. And we told him that uh, we would, he said, we look at it as our day for nothing. <laughs> 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 he actually sat through the whole movie in 16 millimeter in Todd McCarthy's oh, um, love uh, it. living room. Were there, so when you're in Hollywood at this time, I, to me, this is what, you're so lucky and Peter Bogdanovich, it's the same luckier, thing. Luckier than us. Cause yeah, because we're 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 lucky in that we came in at the end of the great Hollywood the, period. These people were alive, though. Right. And Peter, but Peter's a little ahead of us. You yeah, know? and so he got to do the pictures in the '60s, and we were right. the, we were stuck with the dregs of the '70s. But uh, I, I it, it I often, except for the fact that it makes me really old, uh, it, I often am grateful that I didn't start later. I, uh, another th- reason why I don't know what to tell people when they say, well, you know, right. how do I get into the business? And I just keep saying to myself, what business? Yeah. Because you know, we don't even know what business it is anymore. It's not theatrical. Yeah. It's not cinematic. And all your movies ref- reflect uh, a great love for cinema. And you have to have a kind of a somewhat of an understanding of that that mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering now <laughs> as I was watching well, the films. Film history is, is uh, it suffers a little because, yeah. uh, you know, when you and I were kids, there were like maybe seven TV stations and you would watch whatever was on. Mm-hmm. And if you missed it, you it wouldn't probably, if you, an old movie or something that you wanted to see, it wouldn't be on again for another year. Right. So you'd have to try to stay up and get the toothpicks out and like prop up your eyelids yeah. in the middle of the night and then you'd fall asleep anyway. Now, we, it's, it's an incredible bounty of stuff mm-hmm. that is available to see, stuff that hasn't been, it, it's been in the vaults since mm-hmm. 1932, uh, is now, you can see them in, in really nice prints. But the problem is that there's no curating. There's no, no exactly. somebody has to tell you. You can't. You can't just go on the Netflix queue and say, "Well, there's a bunch of titles." You know? Yeah. You, that's one of the reasons we started Trailers from Hell was to get contemporary filmmakers to tell younger audiences mm-hmm. these are movies and characters and people and artists that you should know. Right. Yeah, because because there's so many things going on in the world. There's so much to. Um, take away your interest in whatever it is that you're. There's mm-hmm. so many options. That, that, that movies have become a much smaller part of, I think, the lives of most people than they ever were in, when we were younger because mm-hmm. there was only, it was radio, television, records, and sports. Right. That was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And now with the video revolution and video games and all this kind of stuff, it, it, it's, it's, it's this tremendous me. amount of, of uh, opportunity to, to not watch movies. Well, that's why I recommend if anyone likes your films, you, they've got to listen to the, the commentaries are brilliant. I was I would be watching them and then texting my friends like you've got to listen. They're so funny in particular again because you've got the actors in the room but uh inner space commentary with you and Kevin McCarthy and you're talking about technical aspects and he's just remembering what parts of his got cut. No, Kevin was a, a great guy. I mean that was another thing. I mean Kevin McCarthy just to look at him I hadn't you know you forget and you take for granted until I rewatched Inner Space, and again, that even somebody like me, the re-impact of Kevin McCarthy and what he, you know his films and well, being able to work with people that you admired, you know, is is one of the perks of, of yeah. making movies. And when you find somebody that you like, like Kevin or Dick Miller or people that I've had in all my movies, yeah. you want to find parts for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you want, and so 
then you find, well, now I've worked with so many people that I can't find parts for all of them. I, it's, yeah. it's impossible. And you know, we want to miscast people just so they can be on the set and say hello to you. Right. So, uh, it, and then, and then of course, the, the inevitable happens, which is you get older and they pass away. And yeah. you can't use them at all. I mean, I used to depend on Jerry Goldsmith for music scores. Uh, uh, in, in, in finding a replacement for him, it's been... It's just impossible. Yeah, you know? that's another highlight. I mean, the great, and I'm going to get to that. Okay, uh, I am curious. But now, Howard Hawks, I, I always a- ask directors this, his uh, his rules for directing are don't irritate anyone with your directing. <laughs> <laughs> and you, he's, you're supposed to have no bad scenes. And, and five good ones. No, oh, you but, only need one good one. Oh, okay. You only need. Wait, one. But there was one, one with five in there somewhere. He, he, his rules are, uh, uh, no, oh, no bad scenes. Uh, apologies, no bad scenes. Three great scenes. Okay, that's all you need. And don't irritate anyone with your directing. So, do you have any sort of rules along? Like, what are you? What is? The, what are Joe Dante's rules? I just remember the rules that Roger gave us. He's, uh, don't congratulate yourself after every shot, and try to sit down a lot. And, and of course, there were no chairs. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't have any directing roles. I, I kind of, I, I used to draw storyboards and, and shot lists and stuff, mm-hmm. and now I basically just do it by instinct. I just mm-hmm. sort of make it up as, it, as I go along. But I, I think that what I would say is try to find projects that interest you mm-hmm. that, so that you can actually put something of yourself in the movie. Because right. I, my rule is I don't make anything I wouldn't go see. Mm-hmm. And, that's, a group, that's a good rule. And I, I think it's important because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just sort of illustrating somebody else's stuff without having any of your heart in it. Yes. And people, your goal is to make the kind of movies that a lot of people that we love made, where you can flick on the channel and you can tell who's you can tell it's a Kubrick movie, you can tell right. it's a Wells movie, you can tell you know because you just know there's certain a Preston Sturgis movie and there's just certain yeah. telltale signs that, that that this is a picture with a personality. You know, it's very interesting you say that because it, it, it's true. It's hard today to see a director's touch in a film. Well, it just, it's on purpose. They, they, they don't want to have a director's touch. You <laughs> want to be able to appeal to the mass audience, the la- largest people that you, the audience that you can. And one way of doing it is by not having a pronounced personality. In I the movie. see. And so yeah. when you make a big studio movie, and, and let's be fair, there's a lot of money riding on these movies. I mean, it's right. a tremendous responsibility. And so it, to do those quirky little touches mm-hmm. that make the movie your own, right. there's a lot of people who just don't have a, they don't have much stomach for that. And it's like, don't, don't, don't hire him. He'll, he'll make it. He'll make it funny when it shouldn't be funny. He'll, right. he'll, he'll the Try tone. The tone will be, un, you know, unpredictable. We don't like that. We want it to be predictable. We want yeah. them to come back. We want all the Harry Potter movies to look alike. Now, all the people who directed those movies are all different people and they're all talented. Mm-hmm. But the movies kind of do look alike, you know. Yeah. And I think it's on purpose. I, I can't tell. I fall, I fall asleep. Some of the, <laughs> everything is too close for me and too fast. We have to move back. I, I just—it's just me. I don't know. I feel like I'm in a ride, and it—and I'm too well, close to the ride. Spot. They are. They're rides. They're e-ticket rides. Well, I guess that's, that's, that's what, it's all going over my head. I had much more fun watching the howling. Um, <laughs> so the screenplay is by the great John Sales. People forget that he, he came from that genre. From Corman. Yeah, and uh, it also acts in the movie. Oh my God, he's, he's a wonderful actor. He's a great actor. You know. Uh, he shows up in a lot of your films, but of course, what's important about the movie is that uh, it's the first time they didn't use the time lapse photography, right? So when you see a werewolf movie 
or Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, the, the, the technology was shifting, and obviously the idea was you didn't want, as much as we loved those movies, yeah. uh, we didn't want to duplicate them mm-hmm. uh, because there didn't seem to be much point. And so at that time, there was a, uh, a resurgence in this liquid latex idea that you could put bladders in people's faces and you could mm-hmm. inflate them and you could blow them up and you could change the shape of the face and all right. that. And you can do it on camera without having to do uh, you know, any uh, optical tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of uh, got out of hand after a while. There was a movie <laughs> called The Beast Within where the monster has this big Charlie Brown head uh-huh. and they just keep inflating it and you just keep <laughs> thinking, when is this thing going to blow up? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, but now that's obsolete too, you know. All, all of these technological advances that we, right. that we do, uh, they're 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 good for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and then something else comes along and replaces it, and it's much like now everything is CGI. Uh, if Gremlins was made today, the Gremlins would not be puppets; they would be CGI, and they could do anything. I mean, we had we we were constantly hamstrung by the fact that they just couldn't do things. Right. We couldn't get Gizmo to walk. We couldn't get them to to, to fly. We couldn't, you know. We, yeah. And then eventually we figured out a way to do it. When the technology changed for the sequel, we had more leeway of what we could do. Right. But even now, all of that is stuff. That was 1990. So this is this is like we've come a long way, and people are now expecting to see uh, Fantastic Beasts. You know that that kind of special effects uh, yeah. extravaganza, where there's so many effects that they kind of cancel each other out, and I th- I find that with some of the blockbuster superhero movies mm-hmm. where there is so many action scenes and piled on top of one another that yeah. you kind of get numb, uh, but but that's what the audience has been conditioned to want now, and if you run an older film for mm-hmm. a lot of younger people they go well, gee this is so slow. You know, when actually what it's doing is it's building character or it's telling a story or it's setting mm-hmm. backstory or it's doing all those other corny things that people don't like to do anymore. Uh, and uh, all of my favorite movies are, I'm afraid, probably from the pre-1970 period. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, again, having gone back and looked at all these films, they all hold up. There's great acting. Everybody is really invested. You know, there's no, there's nothing that's tongue-in-cheek about it. And uh, and again, I I enjoy those kind of effects because, you know, it's a tour de force. You even when the movie stops for the transformation of the werewolf, it you and it does stop. Let's face it, it stops. But, it stops cold for the transformation of the werewolf. No, but see, and that's I enjoy that. The, the exhibitors they, they sold the movie to the exhibitors <laughs> with a with a reel of transformation, and the exhibitor said, "That's great. Don't cut a frame." Yeah. And so the company came back and said, "Don't cut a frame." And so now you've got an actress who's standing there watching this transformation go on for like you know a long right. time, and we, we 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 tested it out on some kids. There were some kids down the hall, and there was a casting office, and uh-huh. we brought some. Let's bring them in and show them the transformation scene, see what they think, because you know they're kids. Yeah. So the kids watch it for a while, and in the middle of it, the kid says, "Why don't she run away?" <laughs> <laughs> She can't run away. They told us she has to stay there. She's mesmerized. <laughs> well, but it became—that's what, be- that's what we told D. Oh. <laughs> but didn't it become again like a set piece? In you know, when you think of Alien, and, and you know, it's like the yeah. same thing. It's that side. But shot. Alien, you know, the great—the thing about Alien, which is a, a terrific movie, the, it teases you through the entire movie as to what right. the alien looks like. And right. at the very end, when you see it's a guy in a suit, it can't help but just be a little bit disappointing. Yes. It's like Close Encounters <laughs> when Spielberg went back and put yeah, the... Yeah, no. Why did he Ill-advised. do that? 
ill-advised. Well, they probably made a lot more money with it. Oh, by putting that little. But <laughs> yeah. I thought I thought of you because I, I on the commentary you're saying Stephen would always at the last minute he'd cut this, cut this, and I was like, oh, but it's on his, in his own movie. <laughs> well, that's, put, that was true of John Landis too. And I, I, when I worked for him, John would everybody else's stuff. He would you know, oh, this could be shorter and this could be shorter, but his own, no, that's fine. <laughs> no, we're gonna have the full. Um, so in addition to having uh, uh, D. Wallace in the film, uh, and I, you have the great John Carradine, working with John Carradine, and I was wondering, there's a wonderful story that you tell on the commentary about you were having a rough night and you had to shoot everyone in one Well, John shot. was, uh, you know, he, he was somebody I grew up loving. I, I thought his performance in The Grapes of Wrath is still one of the great American yeah. performances. And, um, and of course, he, had, he would do anything, mm-hmm. any movie at all he would do. And, uh, and I was thrilled to get him at nonetheless. And uh, one night, we, the generator went down, and uh, we were shooting literally by car headlights, which is one of the things Roger used to say you could do. Don't worry, you don't need a generator. Just turn on the cruise car headlights. Well, I didn't think that was possible, but actually it did work. So we're, and and I'm, I, turn, I was pretty demoralized, and I turned to John Carradine, and I said, John, I'm afraid this isn't going to be the best picture you've ever made. And he said, well, son, it won't be the worst one either. I don't know. Which made me feel a lot better. Well, and you filled, but you filled in the frame with smoke. That's why I say there's a lot to be learned. You know, people say, "How am I going to get my movie made?" You know, some of these commentaries are, are are interesting, but yours are particularly useful in terms of actually learning some tricks. You know, so that's a good scene because you can't tell at all. I would have never known that you had. Well, it's my secret. <laughs> Except I've blown it now. That <laughs> <laughs> you had a, a so, and then is there another story that I uh, read that Kevin McCarthy walked in Central Park all night deciding whether or yes. not he should do Piranha? Yes, he, he, we, we asked. We originally had an actor named Eric Braden who was playing the part, mm-hmm. who is uh, who's, he was in um, Colossus: The Forbidden Project, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. movie, and um, he became very big in soap operas. And he, <laughs> Piranha was a rather low-budget affair. And we were shooting on the Olympic swimming pool down at USC, mm-hmm. uh, everybody in their wetsuits. And, uh, uh, and we had these rubber piranhas, and we were, like, you know, gluing them to people. And it was, <laughs> we were really making it up as we went along. And Eric came down there to shoot some underwater stuff and saw what kind of a show this was. And he, call, he, he denies this today, but he, he called me on the phone. He said, I, I, I've never done this, but I, I hate to tell you, I, I just I have to withdraw. I really don't think I can do this movie. And um, I understood mm-hmm. uh, completely. Uh, but I need to find a replacement. Right. And so I suggested Kevin, because he was always one of my favorite actors. I had no idea whether he would do it or not. But, mm-hmm. but I remember talking to his agent, and the agent said, uh, you know, well, Mr. McCarthy is out in Central Park walking around. Uh, trying to decide whether or not he should do the movie. <laughs> he said, well, when he comes back, you know, I'm call me. <laughs> and uh, he did do the movie, and yeah. we became very good friends. Yeah. And uh, I put him in a lot of other movies, and he was just a, a hell fellow well-met. I mean, he was not only a really good actor, but he was just a, a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. As, as almost all of the actors that I've used over and over, oh, I can't say almost, I mean, all of them, they're, they're, they're really nice people. Uh-huh. And they're people that you want to have around you. And, and, and you develop a shorthand so you don't really have to do a lot of directing. Right. Because if you've cast the picture correctly, you really shouldn't have to do a lot of directing unless you've got some neophyte person or somebody mm-hmm. who's not quite sure what the part is. Um, and it's 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 a source of comfort mm-hmm. to go to the, to the set in the morning, which it's a tough thing to do. Make movies. It's not that's not really easy. Yeah. But it makes it a lot easier if you've got friends around you and you've got people who are supporting you and people who know what you're 
what kind of movies you make and how mm-hmm. you think. Uh, and I think it makes the product better. I think also, um, uh, and in particular, um, you know, with somebody like Robert Picardo, they who who goes from movie to movie, and you you really get that feeling. Um, you know, there are no small parts. You know, mm-hmm. because he with gusto, he goes into every film. It's like now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. Well, he does it as if it's the only one he's doing. You know, the only one he's going to do. He he plays the part as if he's the lead in the movie. Well, and I think every actor should do that. I, mean, I there agree. Are, all those those there are no walk-ons. Yeah, that's, that's the scene is about the waitress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's but that's that's something that's very uh, enjoyable. And then there, there's also a lot of humor in all of your movies, and you have certain rules. I was saying in the top of the show about that, about why you need comedy. Hitchcock always used comedy. And well, I think I, I, in in the genre that I've been working in uh, is so close to absurdity that mm. if you don't acknowledge that, the audience will find it in places that you don't want them to find it. Right. And so, uh, and, and there is an a roller coaster quality to horror movies, you know, mm-hmm. when 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 you can, if you scare them with a jump scare, mm-hmm. uh, they'll all laugh afterward right. because it's they they they've they've got they fooled you fooled them and they they laughed and it's fine and then mm-hmm. and now they're relaxed and now you can scare them again, yeah. You know, whereas if you keep them in a constant state of terror <laughs> the entire movie, right, uh, it's kind of you get diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. The uh, so and then of course I, now I have, I, we've got to get to the Gremlins, which was another technical uh, achievement. It was again so much fun to go back and watch the film, uh, and you know, and just re- recall. I, I loved it. I was having a blast. I, all the great scenes came back to me. I know you're looking at me like, please don't talk about the Gremlins. <laughs> no, 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 no. I can do it. I, it's, it's my life's work. It's not. It's not. It's, <laughs> if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, we're Gremlins get, director hit by no, bus. No, no, no. We're going to get to matinee, which I love. Matinee is 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 brilliant. Um, but just the mythology of uh, you know of Gremlins. You, you know, at one point you have the Gremlin in the in the, uh, on the side of the road. Wait, which movie was that? I was I've, I've been on the Joe Dante Film Festival. It could have been a Critters movie. I think that was maybe Ghoulies. Oh, maybe it was Ghoulies. But I was thinking, God, would people even know the like a Gremlin car that you know what that? Oh, that I did. A, I did a Gremlin car joke. I, I did. I did that in a couple of movies. I think I, there's a Gremlin car joke in Inner Space too. Yes, uh, nice. but I am so un. I, I, it has to be pointed out to me basically because I don't know anything about because you can't remember <laughs> the. So I won't spend a lot of time on it. I'm just thinking that it's important because again, I can't imagine the hundreds of people that it took to be under with a set raised was, I think that that's the thing that people forget as an actor it was quite an undertaking you, uh, you then have to act the scenes well, and but, I don't, but it's a lot easier to act the scenes if there's a puppet there or something there to look at as opposed to the poor actors in the Star Wars movies who have to look you know they're in a green screen and they don't even know where the set ends yeah uh, but, but Corey Feldman is in in, in Gremlins and yeah. he has a scene with Gizmo on a bed where he looks like he's playing with a puppy yeah and it is completely convincing because he's he actually relates to it as if it's alive and there was a dog in the movie mm-hmm. who thought that the puppet was real yes and we got we got amazing <laughs> stuff from this dog. I mean, he was great. Yeah. And and it, it just, all of which went a little closer to making the audience buy the fact that these little bolt-filled puppets yes. are actually, you know, living creatures. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the technology at the time required that the sets be built up on stilts and that all the puppeteers be underneath 
the set with mm-hmm. monitors and gears and switches and, and, yeah. and all that. And, and it was like a little underground city. Uh, and it was hot and it was mm-hmm. sweaty and it was difficult. And, and it, it, since no one person could op- operate one gremlin, right. you had more than one person. So that meant that if, if somebody's doing the eyebrow on the left, mm-hmm. the one on the eyebrow on the right has to go the correct way or else it's not going to look like a real expression. Yes. So there's lots of outtakes, <laughs> lots of things that don't work. <laughs> and we shot them at different speeds. We shot, we shot them fast. We shot them slow. We, right. And then, and then we shut down uh, for a month. Mm-hmm. And came back up for another month to just shoot puppets. Yeah. Just gremlins. My God. <laughs> I, was, I, was, yeah. I, was, I was fit for well, that's when. Is that when you had, like, where the, where the crew would, you know, find way, they'd write things they could torture Gizmo? Well, or? that, yes. We, the, we think, uh, terrible, was terrible things the Grumlins can do to Gizmo. <laughs> uh, and it was a, it was a list. And they, the, the dart throwing was, I think, the main thing that came oh. out of that. It's very funny. Again, I I hate to be so heavy on the commentary, but it is really funny. And again, what I picked up on was that when the movie starts, the three of you are like, oh, God, I can't believe we're going to talk about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) But by the end of the commentary, you guys, you all three of you start to get very quiet. Like, you know, it's pretty good after all. And And I, that's how I feel about you know about it there's a very style aside from uh the obvious cultural reference what's interesting about it is the the great music as you said by jerry goldsmith and the stylized um look of the film which i again i don't know if you could achieve today well the original idea was to shoot it um for real like in oregon Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a first uh, production for Amblin, mm-hmm. and uh, Stephen wanted to uh, make it very low budget, mm-hmm. as my previous pictures had been. And uh, so he wanted, he was going to use the Osmonds. Osmond family had a studio, apparently, in Oregon, mm-hmm. and he wanted to use that and shoot it on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, you know, I don't think – you can't take these puppets out on the street. You have to build a world around them. Right. And we should shoot it on a back lot. We should make it look like it's a wonderful life. We should make it look like a real movie town that's that's idealized, that's right. not real. And they bought into that, and I think that was one of the reasons why the picture worked. Mm-hmm. It has uh, the great Hoyt uh, Axton. Yes, just Hoyt has... Axton, who would, who would serenade the crew in between takes. Yeah, he was a great guy. He, oh my God! You know, but it, it again, it really works because of that whole. It, there's all sorts of homages to uh, Warner Brothers, to the back lot of being a Warner Brothers, uh, and I, I, I don't know. I just really, you know, in, I just enjoyed it. It's got that invasion of the body snatchers kind of vibe, and again, like some of the big set pieces of the movie with all the. All the puppets in the movie theater, the mom. Whatever happened to the actress who played the mom? I don't know. I, I saw her in a picture. God, she was funny. My friend Tim Hunter directed called Tex, and she was Matt Dillon's Matt Dillon's first picture, I think. And mm-hmm. and, and uh, he he was her mo- uh, teacher. Yes. And I thought well, she's really solid, and she played this part in Grandma's, and she was great. And I don't know. What I, I know, she's still with us, but I, yeah. I don't know what happened with her career. She decided to just not do it. She was so fun because, again, that that to me is is that slight homage to the fifties. You know, mom now fighting back. Yeah, yeah. You well, know. it's like you know, there's cockroaches in your kitchen. You got to get them out. But she's the modern. <laughs> in the old days, they would just scream. But she's in. No, the, she throws them in the microwave. She's gonna. <laughs> Uh, you can't. You can't tell me that. See, the, any special effects is going to be better than the uh, 
than that. Okay, and my last thing with that, of course, is I have to mention the the what's with the Edward Arnold uh, cameo well, photograph? Because Edward the- Arnold used to play those kind of Capra villains. Yes, and uh, we thought that if she was married to him, yes, and he had passed away and she had his fortune, that we would be able to use. We talked to his family, and they yeah. were okay with it. Uh, and we were able to do a gag with his eyes after she goes flying past him to have his eyes move as if he looked at her. Yes, it's a it's a it's a it's a Preston Sturgis joke. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, but it's uh, uh, you know, I I was happy to have Edward Arnold in the movie, even though he'd been dead for like twenty years. <laughs> I know. At first, well, that's what's one of the fun things about seeing the movie as a grown up. I can pick up on all these little. I could look in the background and and you know see all these things. So the um, so then now you go into. Uh, uh, um, inter- did you do Inner Space next or Gremlins Two next? I, I did. Uh, I'm afraid I did Explorers next. Oh, Explorers next, which I have not seen, so I'm not going to get into e- Explorers, except for that it, it does launch the career of Ethan Hawke. Yes, it does. And uh, and River Phoenix. Yes, and uh, but and I, they I, were great. They were wonderful. It just was released before it was finished. Is the problem with that movie? Now, how does that happen when, when the studio you're changed? So successful? The, the, the stu- well, the studio changed hands, oh, uh, I see. and the, the, the incoming administration isn't really very interested in making a hit out of the previous administration's movies, right? And so they just want to get them out as fast as possible, and they just basically came and said, "Okay, you're done." Uh-huh. I said, "But we've got two more months of no, no, you don't. Just lock it, finish it, and release it." Wow, I find that really surprising. And couldn't couldn't Spielberg sort of come? Yeah, here? it's not a Spielberg movie. Oh. No. Well, he's, but he's still, on my own. he still can't come. He to loved it. He, I, when I visited him, he had a, I had a print of Explorers, and I said, "What's this?" For? Oh, my kids love it. <laughs> you know, go figure. <laughs> he didn't produce it. It's interesting. Well, I'm I'm actually looking sort of looking forward to seeing it. It's now, a nice movie. It's just not finished. <laughs> um, it, now, Inner Space, which again I rewatched. Uh, it's uh, can I sort of say it's a little bit of a Martin and it Lewis? is my, that was the whole concept that was pitched me was what ha- what would happen if you shrunk down. Dean yeah. Martin and inject them into Jerry Lewis because previously it had been offered to me as a straight movie. It wasn't uh-huh. a comedy. It was like the same plot, but it yeah. was serious. And yeah. I said, no, this doesn't work. <laughs> and so then when they came back, they had hired a writer named Jeffrey Bohm, who was very talented, and he had turned it into this sort of Martin and Lewis esque comedy. Yeah. And they were, and that was fun to make because the cast was so much fun. I mean, uh, uh, Marty and uh, Marty Short and uh, Dennis Quaid were wonderful as Meg Ryan, one of her early pictures. And yeah. And Kevin, of course, and Bob Picardo plays this Persian uh, in, in a role you probably couldn't do today. Um, and, and, and the special effects won an Academy Award, which is as yes. close to an Academy Award as I'm ever going to get. Uh, you know, I, you never know. You never know. You could, you know, look at Kurosawa. He's still making, uh, wasn't he still making movies in his 80s and things like that? I don't know. I, I, I always go the Ruth Gordon way. So um, the... So Pauline Kael knocked the film by saying you were trying to please the audience, but isn't that what a director does? Is I actually try, try to please myself. I uh-huh. don't. I haven't been doing the audience pleasing thing. Uh huh. And if you've seen some of the movies, you'll see that that's true. Um, I you no, know, she uh, she didn't like the movie. She she had liked Gremlins, and so she was sort of like uh, for a while. I was okay, right? And then she uh, she didn't like Inner Space because I was being too cute or something. It's so interesting in those days that you could have a personal relationship with with a reviewer. Well, I mean, listen, at least there used to at least there were reviewers. Right. I mean, you know, there were people actually writing seriously about movies in yeah. serious magazines. Yes. That's no longer true. 
That's that is true. And then la- later on, I like the fact that uh, you put Leonard Maltin because he, he well Leonard had Leonard hated Grumlins, and so I <laughs> said when Grumlins? I got to do Grumlins too, Leonard. he thought he thought it was in bad taste or something, and, and so I got <laughs> to do Grumlins too, and he's a friend of mine, and I said, listen, this is a wacky kind of Hell's a Poppin movie. Why don't you be in it, and you can I'll let you say whatever you want. You can do a movie review yeah. of Grumlins, but but uh, you, you have to get killed at the end of the review. Uh-huh. And he was he was fine with that, and that was it was a lot of fun. He was. Uh, uh, no, another question I wanted to ask with the casting of Meg Ryan is, is that you said you saw like you know fifty actresses for that part, and why is it that always that the girl part like they cast the guys, but it's like we are we putting a certain amount of pressure on the girl to be funny, pretty, all encompassing? Well, I mean it's it's generally a bromide that most of these movies, particularly in this period, were about men, mm-hmm. and there of course there had to be a quote love interest, mm-hmm. and then that was sort of like well we'll get to that. You know, let's let's figure out who these two guys are first. Right, but um, meanwhile, without her, because she's sort of got to like both of them. No, no, she, well, she's she's wonderful in the movie, but uh, the the problem with that movie was that one of the producers didn't like Marty Short and said that he he said, "quote Why couldn't you get somebody to look more like Dennis Quaid?" <laughs> <laughs> Which betrays a certain ignorance of the actual content of the movie. Yes, uh, and so um, it, 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 eventually he had to be barred from the uh, from the the dailies because he would make terrible comments about Marty. Oh, no, was on. <laughs> is the now is the actor aware of something like that? Uh, not if you can help it. No. Oh, well, yes, now. <laughs> but uh, so, and, but it, again, it's a movie where it looks like everybody's having a lot of fun. We did have a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, rain. and Marty was uh, there was so much because we had a sound thing worked out that because Dennis and Marty are seldom together in the movie right uh, that they're all, but they're in every scene together yeah we uh, figured out a way for them to ad lib so that they could actually um, instead of pre-recording and then having to respond back they could actually improvise yes and, and so a lot of their relationship in the movie is just came out of the two of them one of them in a booth and one of them on the set mm-hmm. uh, and um, it made it a lot more fun yeah and Marty would, you know, Mar- Mar- Marty would, would, if he wanted another take, he would, he would beg in the voice of Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> oh, Joe, please, one more. Give me one more take. There, there are also some incredible stunts in the movie, which is another kind of thing that you... Again, no, we had, a, we had a great stunt guy, Glenn Randall. Uh, and, um, they're, they're funny stunts, though. They're oh, kind yeah, of funny they're Jerry Lewis stunts. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but, which I which I enjoy is that, but they actually look scary. They're well, they're funny hard to do. And, yeah, they're hard to do. Yeah, I could I could tell, and it really looks like it's uh, you know Martin Short, and, and yeah. you know, in many of the um, instances. So after you did that movie, did you ever think about just doing a straight up comedy or a straight up romantic? Uh, well, comedy? I would I would I was wanted to do a western, but of course they were they tend to be out of fashion, particularly if one comes out and doesn't make any money, which happens every couple of years. Uh-huh. Um, I think the next movie was The Burbs, which was originally going to be they thought a um, uh, a Hitchcock parody. Uh-huh. It was called Bay Window when I read it. And I said, this is a little much to think that this is a Hitchcock parody. I mean, it's just about these these paranoid neighbors, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, but and that was shot during a writer's strike. So oh. we shot the whole... Th- it was another movie they wanted to make in a real location. And I right. said, you know, this should be stylized. This should yeah. look like a movie. So we shot it up at the, the Universal Backlot, which had, had previously been down where Amblin is. And they took all the houses and they moved them up to the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. So there's this very odd collection of houses from 
House of the Seven Gables next to yeah. the Marcus Welby House, next to the Munster House. It was like, what a neighborhood. But it was, but it's, it was wonderful. And, and also, it, it's, um, there's a lot of wildlife out there. So while you're shooting, there's raccoons, there's deer. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. And, and because of the strike, I, I said, look, let's shoot the picture in sequence since we're all in the same location. Right. And then that way, if we come up with stuff... Uh, it'll it'll all be we, we can work with it we can work with the story mm-hmm. whereas you know in a movie like New York New York there's some wonderful improv scenes but mm-hmm. they kind of aren't about what the movie's about and yes. so they tend to slow it down a little so this, this let's make these organic to the right. movie and we had this wonderful cast of really bright people and there's a lot of funny ad libs in the movie, mm-hmm. and and the writer was although on strike, I still put him in the movie as an right. as an actor because I thought, well, you know, he he could whisper to me and right, nobody, you know. um, <laughs> it's not writing, but that, we were the only picture shooting in town that uh, that that summer. Wow, so that adds another mystery. Well, that that's that's one of your hallmarks. You always have that. You always hire the writer. I I like to try to have them on the set if possible. I love that idea. Could could you ever get away with that currently? I don't know. I'm not if it's a location picture because then you've got to bring them out and you got to pay right. for it and everything. But I, I think it's uh, it, it's just such a it's a boon to have the writer around. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it, there's lots of things that don't work sometimes in a movie. Lines don't work. Right. Uh, an actor has a problem with something, and, and I can interpret it and I can do my job. But mm-hmm. but to have the guy who actually wrote it there mm-hmm. and maybe come up with something better, right? Uh, that's actually authored by him mm-hmm. uh, is I think a, a, it's a it's a, a it's worth the money. Now, how do you get a sense of when something isn't working? I mean, I know as an actor. I'm I like, think I think the fact that you know as an actor means that you would you would uh, indicate to me that. Well, see, sometimes the director doesn't know. Well, <laughs> but you, I, well, if if an actor's having problems, I mean, it, it can become pretty apparent. Yeah, uh, because they're not picking up lines, they're not getting their cues, they're not. Whatever I mean, mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's a it's it's like a, a metastasizing thing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, and we're all in this together. So mm-hmm. it, you know, I think that everybody. I don't. I, I've had great suggestions from grips that mm-hmm. ended up as very good things in movies that I've done. Right. Uh, I think any idea that makes the movie better is a good thing. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm fascinated about your movies uh, is the staging. The staging is just brilliant. That for me, that's always. I wouldn't put it that way, but no, uh, it really I, is. I, I am very influenced by William. Karen Menzies, who was one of my favorite uh, uh, directors, who was a production designer. Yes, and uh, his movies are Alice in Wonderland. Remember? Yes, he did Alice in Wonderland. He did Invaders from Mars, yeah. uh, which is a child's eye view movie of mm-hmm. a science fiction movie in which all the sets are very spare and very dreamlike, and then mm-hmm. it turns out to be a dream. Mm-hmm. Sorry if I spoiled it, um, <laughs> but it was 1952. <laughs> but no, that's so. Is that something you do? Do you rehearse before I like you re- shoot? I like to rehearse. It's, it's seldom possible these days mm-hmm. uh, for scheduling reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I table reads. I had mm-hmm. a table read on the Burbs. I remember. Uh, I think maybe the last one I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I mean, I remember Bruce Stern saying to me about Henry Gibson. He said, "Henry hasn't got it yet, but he's going to get it. He <laughs> hasn't got it yet." Um, but that's wh- that's when you form relationships with people. I mean, yeah, because they're not in character; they're they're themselves. And, mm-hmm. and uh, working with actors is the best part of making movies. I mean, it, it's because they constantly surprise you, and kid actors are particularly exciting because you really never know what they're going to do or where they're going to come from. Right. Uh, and uh, Corey Feldman is a standout, of course, in The Burbs. Very funny. And He's very funny and he was going through some tough times at the time. So, oh, so he, he, he turned out uh, fine with it, but um, he was... Uh, 
uh, he, he, as he as he and I have discussed, he was a handful. Oh, he was. And <laughs> sort of is the uh, I guess yeah, that he's great. He's and he, he was perfect for the. He part. looked like the most fun. I, you know, it's so funny as I was watching the movie and knowing him a little bit. I said, I bet the most fun he had was being on the set. I bet getting him to the set was the. Uh, no, the know. most funny ad was with Michael Jackson's chimp, uh, oh, bu- Bubbles. Bubbles. Bubbles used to come to the set, and he would crap all over Corey's trailer, and they'd have to clean it out. And so Bubbles became persona non grata. I'm surprised you didn't put him in the movie. Set a gremlin <laughs> on him. Um, now you changed the ending of that. You went back and reshot. Well, that's not that's not unusual, you know. Uh, well, I, in I, your I once, films, I once you did do a it picture, a lot. I once did a picture where I told the, the studio and they were going to preview it, and I said, "Let's let's not shoot the ending. Let's save some money because you know you're going to want to change it. You know yeah. you're going to want a different ending. Let's just save the money and yeah. we'll just preview it up to the ending, and then we'll ask the audience what they think. And and that's what we did, and it worked. <laughs> well, I thought that the wow. ending. The uh, the because there's two endings. Uh, the the well, one there were, there were more than two. There were there are just, two on the DVD. There's yeah. the one that's in the movie, and then there's the one that didn't play at the preview, where Henry Gibson does a long monologue about the suburbs. I know. See, I love that. I thought it was really. I and you it was put funny the, too. You put the music from the Twilight Zone behind it, which is my favorite Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> that's the one where Gig Young. Where Gig Young? Oh my God! It was. I just, watched it when my father died. I was blubbering. It may, that they've what is it called? It's when Walking gig, distance. Ugh, when Gig Young can't he can't go home again. Yeah, he's, he's and that music that I think is that Bernard one Bernard Herman. Yeah, Bernard Herman. Yeah. I used to put it. I used to put it in every temp dub, and Jerry wouldn't pull his hair out. Not Bernie again. <laughs> well, yeah, they hate that, right? When you put <laughs> well, I didn't want to put his own music on it. That's the last thing you want to do for a composer is put their own music on something because you're gonna get you're gonna get the same thing back, right? <laughs> But I thought, and so that didn't play well. Do you no, only it give it one? Well, it's not that it didn't play well. It actually played fine. It was, a, it was a preview at Universal, and one guy yelled at the end of the movie, boring, oh, and no. that was enough. And, oh, we got to change it, because they love to change stuff. And so we went back and he shot the ending, which is fine. The one we've got is fine. It's more yeah. action. But there were two other endings. One where they, they open up the trunk of the car, and there's cheerleaders in the trunk of the car. Okay. And there's another one where they open up the trunk of the car, and the garbage men are in the trunk <laughs> of the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the one with the with the the sad Henry Gibson because again, it sort of feels like you know today. And I don't even know. Do we even have suburbia anymore? Suburbia seems like again, it's sort that of was lost. a Penelope Spheris movie. <laughs> suburbia, <laughs> yeah. but the but the you know, but neighbors and getting to know your well, people don't. We not, were united at least. The, the, the people are not quite as close knit in neighborhoods. I don't think anymore as they used to be. We, yeah, we tend to be like a, like in L.A. where everybody gets in their car and. They're hermetically sealed drive-through neighborhoods that they would will never see because they would never get out of their car in that neighborhood. Yes. So it's it's sort of we're all kind of compacting ourselves into uh, modules, uh, <laughs> into, into pods. Um, okay, so I have to get to matinee. I love this film. Um, it I just think it's a beautiful homage to to you know I don't even, I hate to call them B movies monster movies. You know the movies I grew up with. There, uh, I'm a child of the, of the 50s, and the 50s yeah. were the atomic fear era. Yes. Know, we were all, we all we'd, at school, we'd hear an airplane fly over, and we would all tense up waiting for the bomb to drop. Yeah. Because we always thought all the planes had bombs in them, because mm-hmm. that's what they told us. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the fire drills and the, the air raid drills where you would go and sit against the wall and uh, as if somehow the wall wasn't going to collapse. And, yeah. You know, and and it, we all knew it was a bunch of crap. Yeah. But... 
that's what they made us do. Mm-hmm. And so there was a there was a real level of paranoia that was just part and parcel of daily life. It's not like everyone everyone went around you know. Mm-hmm. biting their nails, but there was a sense that any minute this could be over. Right. And only recently <laughs> have I begun to re-experience that feeling. Yes, <laughs> Well, de- I'm, I mean, I'm sure that that never kind of goes away, you know? No, it doesn't. It As doesn't. experienced in the film, again, it was like having to jar my memory of like, oh yeah, that's you know, we've got the, those kind of movies. That It was a pretty accurate portrait of that era, and also an affectionate spoof of those kind of movies. I mean, a lot of the dialogue in Mant, the movie within a movie, yeah. you know, is uh, actually verbatim mm-hmm. from some of the movies from that period. Mm-hmm. I, wouldn't ca- I wouldn't call it a spoof, though, because I love the film so much and I really believe, you know, John Goodman, uh, uh, you know, as this kind of William Castle uh, type character. And some, again, some of the sequences in the, in the movie theater are just incredible with the guy... With the boy, there's a whole subplot. I don't want to ruin the movie, but people should see it because there's a whole subplot of the crazy boyfriend. And I love it. It it, it feels like it's your most most organic uh, movie that combines everything you love. Well, it's kind of personal in that you know I was in, in during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was the age of the lead character, mm-hmm. and I had a little brother who was essentially the age of the little brother character. Mm-hmm. And I had a room full of monster posters and drawings. They're all my drawings. All the drawings mm-hmm. on the wall, they're the drawings that I did. Uh, the monster magazines were, were my collection of monster yeah. magazines. And, and, and so there's a, a lot of verisimilitude from somebody who was actually there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked about the movie, which, which they, A, they let me make it, which I liked that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> B, um, <laughs> they, it didn't exactly set the world on fire, but when people did come, they brought their kids. Right. As if to say, this is how mom and dad used to go to the movies. You see this? There was one screen. Mm -hmm. There was only one screen. Everybody sat and watched one movie. Yeah. And then they went out and got candy. Mm -hmm. Um, That that, that era hasn't gone away. I mean, there's still a certain amount of affection for the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was 1992. And so this is now... 2017. So those years are even further enshrouded in mist. And, uh, you know, and it it was a longer time away. That's that's why it would be a really fun, because I think there's a kind of a resurgence in in cinema and people liking cinema. And again, there's so many little nuggets in the film, um, the the, the movie within the movie, Matt, and you've got um, the the font. How did you get the font? The font is from Deadly Mantis. But it's a universal picture. The great thing about making it's it for incredible. Universal was that we could use all that stuff. We could yeah. use their font. We could use their music from all the 50s <laughs> science fiction movies. Yeah. Uh, and it, otherwise, we would have had to pay through arm and a leg if it was made for somebody else. Yeah. And so it was, it was serendipitous because mm-hmm. we started trying to get it made at Warner Brothers mm-hmm. and eventually ended up becoming an independent movie that was picked up by Universal. And then when the money ran out, Universal stepped in and made it a universal picture. Right. Uh, and... Um, I, I I'm sure to their everlasting regret, but uh, but it was because they you know it wasn't a studio movie; it was an independent movie. It was the kind of movie that Miramax would open in five theaters, right, and get some press and stuff like that. And, and instead, they just dumped it out like a, a new usual another John Goodman picture, like like King Ralph or right or, or Babe Ruth movie. And and, and the, the John wasn't a big enough draw right to to bring in people for such a, a niche story. Mm-hmm. And so it played in lots of theaters. Yeah. You know, and so 
small amounts of people saw it in lots of theaters instead mm-hmm. of a large amount of people seeing it in not many theaters. Well, I, I think what I liked about it is that it, it sort of compares a little bit with a movie like Ed Wood, but it never makes fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes where Ed Wood is a little bit veering towards caricature for me in some of the portrayals, your movie within a movie... That's very earnest. <laughs> it's a very earnest but movie. That, the guy who's playing Mant... Like, who is he? His name was James Villamere. He was uh, an actor who we, we auditioned a whole lot of people. He was the right age. He had a, that sort of greaser look. Yeah. Uh, and as far as I know, after the movie, maybe went off to do something else. I, well, I don't think I've seen him in I have to say, things. for people who like comedy, his portrayal of Mant, the movie within the movie, with his arm movements. There's just certain things. Oh, no. You're, ta- you're, not, you're talking about uh, the, the guy, the actor inside the, the Mant suit. Yes, the actual right. the actual person b- being Mant is... Yeah. is uh, yeah, well, he's a comedian. Oh. So he's he had the chops for that. And who was that? Who was that person? Matt something. Okay. I can't remember his last name. And he was in Runaway Daughters, too, and I can't, oh. I can't remember his name right now. Well, anyway, it goes back to what you say. There are no small parts, because every every part is, is done, and it's very funny. Um, I want to talk about your relationship with your producer, Mike Fennell, and, and how did you guys meet? Mike and I met at Corman's, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, when I was making Hollywood Boulevard, the movie with the girls, uh, you know, uh, the girl actors, and they're throwing hand grenades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one wooden hand grenade. And every time Tara Strohmeyer would throw it, somebody would have to go and pick it up. Right. And that was Mike. That was his job. And he went into a swamp to get it. <laughs> and I remember Jonathan Kaplan looking at him and saying, you're not going to get anywhere in this business <laughs> going into a swamp for wooden hand grenades. But he did. Uh, and the next fixture, he had a better job. And mm-hmm. the next fixture, he had a better job. And finally, he became the producer of Rock and Roll High School. Mm-hmm. And uh, we... I, when I was supposed to do Jaws 3 People 0 mm-hmm. at Universal, a National Lampoon movie that didn't happen, right. uh, Mike was pro- uh, one of the producers on The Howling, and the director was let go, uh, and along with his screenplay. Mm-hmm. And Mike said, do you want to come over here and do the, a werewolf movie? And I really wasn't sure whether my movie was going to fall apart or not, but as it turned out, it, it did, and I went over and did The Howling. And ever since then, Mike and I pretty much teamed up, and mm-hmm. he did Gremlins, and he did Explorers, and he did, all, he did virtually every picture yeah. uh, that I did. And then he went off on his own, did a couple. He did a Goldie Hawn movie called Deceived, and he did um, Newsies, mm-hmm. the original Newsies. Uh, and now he's retired. Now he, he went to live in the East Coast, and he's happy. Wow. I'm still plugging away. How does that... I mean, you, you guys, I, I thought it had to be mentioned because, again, he's on every commentary and it seems like you guys really have a bond. And Well, we've known each other all this time and we come from the Corman group. Which it's a right. rather, it's a rather uh, close school of people who've kept in touch with each other over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we um, like the same movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, it was, as, as Joel Silver once said, trying to get us to do a picture, he said, you guys are one-stop shopping. I get yeah. the director, I get the producer. Yeah. Uh, that was Richie Rich. We didn't make that one. Oh, the, uh, well, anyway, I mean, you know, to have somebody to fight, uh, did he fight battles well, that for was the you idea. too? Sure. I mean, try, try, to keep, try to keep the director from knowing that the studio <laughs> is upset about this and about, you know, that's, that's what, the, that's what the producer is supposed to do. Yeah. Did you have any, uh, I mean, 
I know some of them. I mean, I know some of the positive ones, like you know Spielberg wanted to go back, and the Gizmo. He wanted you know Gizmo was supposed to die, and then he. Has well, to come he, back. No, it, it, it wasn't the Gizmo died. It was supposed to turn into the he, bad gremlin. R- and then okay. Stephen, about th- like three weeks before we were going to shoot the movie, said, "You know, I think that Gizmo is pretty cute. He should stick around for the whole movie." And we we almost died. I mean, we 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 to, to get that little bucket of bolts to look realistic for 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 a half an hour yeah. was already a challenge. But if he was going to carry the movie. Right and be the hero's pal, yeah, and be in every scene. Mm-hmm. It was like, how are we going to do that? The the, the 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 amount of bolts inside this thing were he was they were coming out of his ears. I mean, right. he had to b- go back and build a whole different yeah. uh, setup and build a giant head and be able to get in order to be able to get the kind of expressions that you would need from a character. Yeah. So, it, but it was but it was that single idea is what made the movie a hit. And right. I think probably the reason why the movie is still. Uh, popular is because of the idea that Gizmo stuck around for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I think if he had turned into the Gremlin, it would be just another Critters movie. Mm-hmm. Well, but it's so, you know, but having a producer like that, again, somebody to bounce. Do you ever, like, what is a bad day for you like? Do you ever, you seem very optimistic. Like, yeah, I can't well, imagine you I like your... my job. I mean, I, li- <laughs> I, like, I like going to work. I, I, like, I like the challenges that come up. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a bad day is the ba- a day you don't get all the work. Right, you know, particularly if you're on a location that you have to pay for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right, you got to come back. You know, that's 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 bad. Mm-hmm. That's depressing. Uh, a, a bad day is when the lab says you've, the dailies are ruined. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, on the first day of the howling, they said the dailies were out of focus. Well, it turned out to be the projector, but uh-huh. nonetheless, it was like, why do we have to shoot the whole day over? And it was a bunch of different locations. Uh, so, I've had that happen. So, I mean, those things happen. But yeah. uh, it's always great to have somebody who's on your side, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and, and it's just like anybody else in the movie that you're working with often. You get to know the person. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, there's a lot of nonsense that doesn't have to be gone through. You right. don't have to test each other. You don't have to do any of that. I wonder if he'll, what he'd do if I did this. Yeah. It's already done. And know. and so when the movie is when you're doing the the preview, I mean, again, are these things that they do as much as the old Previews? days? Oh, every filmmaker's do... worst day, the preview. The preview. There's two 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 terrible times of making a movie. <laughs> One is looking at your first rough cut, oh, God. because it's, it'll it'll never be that. The only thing you can say is it'll never be this bad again. And yeah. then you have to go to the first preview, and the first preview often follows discussions with the studio about this or that scene or this idea that they don't like and they think shouldn't be in the movie. And so if somebody so much as sneezes during the scene that you want to keep in the movie, Mm -hmm. then they're going to say, see, that guy didn't like it. Or God God goes to the bathroom during that scene. (laughs) And then you've got to explain to them that, well, they had to go to the bathroom. Right. No, it's, 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 it's it's a very adversary kind of relationship. And, and, and there are, there's, there are previews that you go to where the studio is hoping that your version of the movie is badly received so that they can do their version of the movie. And I've done movies where I've cut two different versions. And they preview both versions and you try mm-hmm. to see which version is more popular. Right. Which is a bunch of hooey as far as I'm concerned. And then there's the research people, you know, the research groups who have their... their Papers that they pass out and their right. quizzes and all this stuff—it's all nonsense. Any filmmaker worth his salt can sit in a theater with the, with their movie, and they can tell when the audience is lost. They can right. tell when they lose them, 
And if they, and it's it's good to know that it's good to mm-hmm. know when they lose. But then you've got to fix that, and then you have to have another preview to say, okay, now that now that this is not a problem, right? Let's see if there's any further problems after that. Yeah. But they don't really have the patience for that. They just like to just go in and slash and tear, and you know, I can't tell you the number of really good movies that have been ruined because of bad previews. Yes. No. I've Magnificent Ambersons being one of them. Being one of them. <laughs> yes, I know, and I've been involved with some of them. Um. So we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to talk about. Well, I know. Is it is it true you're still working? Working on this pro- sort of biopic of Roger Corman. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's not a biopic exactly. It's just one period in his life when he was making uh, the trip. Uh, yeah, and it, for which Jack Nicholson, who wrote the script, said, "You know, you can't make this movie, Roger, if you don't take LSD." <laughs> and so Roger took LSD, and it's about how it changed him and what kind of a person he was before and what kind of a person he was after. And uh, and it's comedy. And yeah, it's, and it's very funny. And we have some interest. Uh, from a company that's been giving us some notes and we just handed in our new version of it and we're mm-hmm. hoping that they will say, okay, let's yeah. do it. But then it, becomes, then it becomes, well, which budget level will we do it on? Well, that right. will depend on who's in it. Right. So who's, if you get this person, we can spend this much money. If you get this person, we can spend this much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of that negotiable stuff is what now goes on. In the old days, they'd come and they'd say, here's a script, you want to do it? Right. That's all funded. Here, here's when we're going to start. Yeah, those days are over, and those are also the days when they you would work at a studio and you'd have an office and you'd have people working for you like in development and you right. develop things on the idea that maybe you might develop something the studio wanted to make and that was mm-hmm. a good investment for them. Well, that's all gone now. None, mm-hmm. none of that happens. So now most filmmakers are doing what Orson Welles did in the last thirty years of his life, which is literally going around begging for money. Yeah, and occasionally making a movie. Yeah, <laughs> we well yes, you're forced to be kind of, and you, it's interesting right, what you said about Mike Finnell because you become the the producer, right? Which I'm very bad at. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Uh, I know it's very premature, but if it's in, if it takes place in the '60s, I mean, again, style wise, how what what. Does it become well? There are ways around it. Film, or it depends on how stylized you want to get with the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you could make it for very, very little money if yeah, you decide, like a Roger Corman movie. Yes, but even then, it wouldn't look quite right because that would be a movie made in the seventies or the sixties. Right. This is a movie made, being made now. Yeah, and the footage of the seventies, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know if you saw Warren Beatty's uh, movie Rules Don't Apply. I which did is a good movie. Yes, I I'm totally dumped. Yeah. Uh, the, the the period stuff in that movie is great. And, mm-hmm. and the, the, the stuff of Hollywood Boulevard, which is, I think, a combination of stock footage and CGI, yeah. is very, very convincing. Yeah. Uh, but that's an expensive movie. Mm-hmm. And, but I think there's a, there's a lower budget way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you just don't want to get hemmed into is the idea that every scene is a green screen scene. Right. You know, um, but it's it's remarkable when you when I did Runaway Daughters for Showtime, which was set in the fifties, and I had to do a lot of location scouting. I was amazed at how little of the town still really exists. Mm-hmm. How something as simple as um, those sidewalks that now have uh, indentations in them for wheelchairs, right? And, uh, the fact that there are no no TV antennas anymore, yeah, and there are satellite dishes instead. I mean, just just the, the amount of mundane things that are different uh, mm-hmm. than were in, in that, that, that. So doing a picture set in the 50s or 60s is almost like as difficult as doing a picture set in the 1860s, wow. right? You know, because it's just the, the town just doesn't look the same. Yeah. And the the uh, and the, the are there certain uh, DPs that you uh, like to work with? I've retired a number of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! 
Uh, yeah, I do. But then so much of the work has been done in Canada lately uh-huh. that, you know, when, when I had all these people who used to call me and say, are you making a movie this year? Because, you know, I, I, all the people that I, my crew that yes. I work with, and they would look, look to me and so say, well, so am I going to have a job? Then the work started going to Canada. Well, I can't right. bring any of those people to Canada. Right. So now you have to work out a whole new Canadian crew of people so that when you go to Canada, you now have, and, and that goes for actors too, mm-hmm. because they don't like importing a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's, a, there's a Canada list of people in, in Vancouver that, right. that has supplanted, for the most part, my Hollywood list because I have made so, so few pictures in Hollywood yeah. in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, now, I understand it's supposed to be getting better. They're supposed to be trying to bring people back with incentives, and, and, which I, I think would be great because this is, after all, where they're supposed to make the movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's Hollywood. why I came out here. Yeah. You know, I didn't go to Vancouver. I came here. Um, and uh, so... I, each each movie is a new, basically a mm-hmm. new a new crew list, right. pretty much, because a lot of the people that I work with have retired or are not with us anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, my last question I'm going to ask you. I, I, thank you so much for being here. I, you know, Carl Reiner says when he's feeling down, he puts on Random Harvest. <laughs> I, I know that's <laughs> that's an odd movie to put on. Well, that's what he said. I mean, he almost gets tears in his eyes. Well. He's like, if you haven't seen. I know. I'm just telling you, random harvest. So, do you have a what's movie? the one? What's the one with, with Natalie Wood and, and uh, Orson Welles, where he's really her father, but he doesn't let her know? What? I don't think tomorrow. I, uh, I don't think I know this. Oh, God, it's a it's a wonderful movie. Um, geez, is Claudette Colbert? I can't remember. Tomorrow was another day. I can't okay. Remember. Anyway, no, I wouldn't put that on. Uh, what do I put on? I put on um, cartoons. Uh huh. Or I put on uh, film noir. Oh, film noir. Any film noir is great. Yeah, um, you're mentioning your Dana Andrews fan. Oh well, the, I mean, but all those guys. I mean, yeah, every, everybody from from Scott Brady to Ted DeCorsia. I mean, all, all these Charles McGraw. Yeah, you know, all these people that that made these movies. And William Tallman is also a very good actor. Mm-hmm. He made a lot of movies before he did Perry Mason. Uh, and now a lot of those things are available now to see. Uh, yeah, and they're and they and they're all short. They're all like 71 minutes long. And yes. Believe me, when movies were shorter, they were better. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Amen. Well, anyway, Joe Dante, thanks so much for uh, being here. Please come back anytime. No, thank you. You thank can you. find Joe on Twitter at Joe underscore Dante. Thank you, Joe. I and you can find Ileana's book, yes, you can. I Blame about Dennis movies. Hopper, about movies on Amazon and at bookstores. Also, like our Facebook page. The website yes, for please. the show is ilianaspodcast.com. And watch watch Matinee. It's one of my favorite uh, film-going experiences. I get a rental. Yes, I yeah, you will. Get, I could probably get two, nine, two nine, cents. 99 cents. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.